Good morning, everybody. My name is Demian Shield. I'm a, an emergency physician and uh, educator, primarily at the Center for Medical Simulation, where I serve as the senior director for our faculty development programs. And uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you all and our amazing panel to the weekly webinar. Uh, today is First Touch, Building Your Organizational Culture After the Pandemic. And uh, I just think it's so timely. We uh, have been gathering uh, online for a number of weeks now in the um, peri and post-pandemic first phase. Uh, wanted to have a place where the community of educators, healthcare providers, healthcare leaders, uh, in any way activists could get together to learn together, to connect and to start creating, reinventing ourselves and our programs for the new normal. And we've had conversations around how to work effectively and how to learn effectively. And today we're working uh, on a topic that I think is just so relevant that I've been thinking about not just at work, but also in public life where um, we're all faced with uh, dealing with the uh, exciting future and the injustices of the present. So without uh, further ado, I'll uh, hand over to Jenny Rudolph, who will be the uh, lead convener for the panel. And uh, But I'll let you know that I will be in the background helping to coordinate your contributions and questions. There's a Q&A button on your uh, Zoom screen. Uh, it's the Q&A where we'll, we'll ask you to uh, share some uh, of your own ideas, but also feed us questions so that we can tailor the material to your interest. So, um, Jenny, I'll hand over to you, and uh, I know you'll uh, have the panel introduce themselves and guide the conversation and uh, pull me in uh, as you need to. So, Thank you, Damien. Take it away. All right. So, everybody... I've been thinking for the last month or two that we will never in our entire lives have another opportunity probably to shape organizational culture to change things as we do now in healthcare because so many things have been taken apart and done differently. And so everything is kind of fluid and malleable and this is our moment to make a difference with the values that we care about, with the processes that we care about. And so this webinar is an opportunity for us to all think together about how we do that. Before I introduce myself and others more, I'd like to just put out a little invitation to everybody who's with us online, and thank you for coming, which is in this moment of change, um, the post-surge for many of us, but those of you in Latin America or Brazil, in the middle of the surge, but pre-vaccine moment, wherever you are, what are the challenges you're facing with respect to the way it feels to work where you work? The way it feels to work where you work reflects the culture where you work. So what we'd love to know, if you would feel like typing it into the Q&A, uh, is, what are the things that feel good where you work? What are aspects of culture feel good? And what is challenging for you? So if you would just take a moment and think about that, 
and um, type that into the Q&A over the next five minutes or so. That would be incredibly valuable. Um, in the meantime, while you're percolating upon that, I'll have some silent moment in a bit. I'm going to introduce uh, myself and others. So everybody welcome. I'm Jenny Rudolph. I'm the executive director of the Center for Medical Simulation. I'm an organizational behavior scholar by training, so this subject of organizational culture is near and dear to my heart. And in my geeky PhD program, I was forced to read many, many papers on it. So I hope to bring some of that mojo to this. Um, and I'm delighted to be here with uh, Dr. Laura Rock, Dr. Lon Setnick, um, Chris Rusin, who's a doctor of philosophy like myself. So Lon, if you don't mind, I'd like to go to you and just ask you to introduce yourself, please. And uh, you know what brings you here to the webinar today? Great, thank you. Uh, my name is Lon Setnick. I am an emergency physician uh, and I practice in Concord, New Hampshire. We are a regional referral center, so about a 200 bed hospital. And I'm the medical director of, of our simulation and education program and I am the immediate past president of the medical staff. Thanks, Lon. And you and I have been talking quite a bit over the last few months about the ways that you're thinking about debriefing, briefing, simulation, shaping culture. And so I'm really excited to bring your perspective from the emergency department there in New Hampshire. Um, Laura Rock, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yes, thank you. I am a pulmonologist and intensivist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. I also am director of communication and teamwork for critical care. And in that role, I work on communication between clinicians and patients and families and also communication among teams to optimize teamwork. Thanks, Laura. And Chris Rusin, my co-panelist, for those of you who are debriefers on here, I'm gonna think of myself sort of as the lead debriefer, but Chris is gonna be my active uh, associate debriefer, helping me stay on track and um, uh, have a great conversation. So Chris, welcome. Tell us a little bit about you. Thank you, Jenny. Hey, Lon. Hey, Laura. Um, I am Senior Director at Center for Medical Simulation of our Educational Leadership and International Programs, also Assistant Professor at Harvard Medical School, and part of the anesthesia department at Mass General Hospital. Um, what do I love to think about? Well, by training, I'm an organizational behaviorist and psychologist. I, I identify as a social psychologist, I think. Um, I really think about kind of systems of people influencing one another, systems of people working together. And with that comes systems of behavior and systems of emotion. And how can we create positive systems of behavior? How can we create positive systems of emotion? that are characterized by trust and psychological safety and that lead us to great outcomes. Those are the sorts of things that I love to think about and that I bring to my work. Um, and most, I, I, most recently, before I came to Center for Medical Simulation, I was the education director at the Boston Children's Hospital Simulation Program. Thank you so much, Chris. Yeah. So everybody who's with us, if we could kindly ask you to type into the Q&A, um, a challenge or something that's difficult in your sense of your organizational culture or something that's positive or both. Um, and we're just going to have a couple minutes uh, to uh, 90 seconds actually to just ask you to do that. So we'll stand by here.
And if you're just logging in by chance, I just saw the number tick over a little bit. I'm asking everybody to just type into the Q&A. Um, and if you need help finding the Q&A, please let us know. What are your challenges with respect to organizational culture? What makes it hard for you to do your work and how it feels? And what is good? Damien, I'm not sure if my counter is correct, but I see that slowly ticking up. Am I correct? And we're seeing we're getting some people, some responses. Yeah, I, I'm seeing four responses, uh, which I appreciate. And um, just to let folks know, these are going to be confidential. Of course, we will just uh, take them in as input and won't attribute them. So Jenny, are, are you following there? To uh, uh, be able to uh, re to respond, uh, no, Damien, or, uh, summarize, please, or would you like me to? Yes, yes please. Just do it for a technical reason, it would be better if you could. Thanks. So, uh, I, as there's a few there, I'll I'll just tell you what I'm seeing. So, I, people are uh, talking about how to uh, get back to work, whether it's clinical work and safety. Am I going to get sick? Uh, there's enough PPE, but what's going to happen? Other folks are thinking about simulation education. Are we gonna be online? Are we gonna be in small groups? Is it gonna be accepted? Um, the, I'm getting a between the line sense of the uncertainty of the future and the not knowing exactly where we're heading. Uh, feeling connected through this digital media. Uh, how's that going to pan out? Um, good things around um, the energy that comes from change, you know, it, uh, the, I think the opportunity you were, you were talking about, Jenny, maybe the, the challenge of going back to the old. Mm, great. Okay, everybody, please feel free to keep typing in there. And thank you, Damien, for uh, translating that over. So uh, for those who joined a little bit later uh, than the absolute beginning, I'd just like to repeat uh, something I said at the very beginning, which is, I don't think there's going to be another opportunity in our lifetimes where we have as much of a chance, because everything's come unglued and been changed in different ways, to have as big an impact on how we work together, how we talk to each other, what we talk about, our values, and those manifestations of organizational culture. And so, with that in mind, Chris, I'd like to just uh, put a question out to you. So as we were developing this uh, webinar and uh, you sent over the title to me and it was First Touch, Building Your Organizational Culture After the Pandemic, I found myself thinking like, First Touch, what is that even? So uh, can you talk a little bit about what were you thinking there? What is this yeah, about? Thanks. thanks, Jenny. So the phrase First Touch is inspired first and foremost by working with my daughter on, on soccer on football and on her on her football skills. Um, and first touch is a reference to when the ball is passed to you in football and you take it onto your feet, um, what do you do with it? And how well do you control it? And, and how well does that set you up to take your next action? And so at least in the US, we call that the first touch in soccer. And if you do that first touch well, 
if you control the ball and keep it at your feet, that allows you to do whatever you want at that point. You can shoot, you can pass, you can st stop and look at the field, and you can do that with control. So that phrase, because I'm a, you know, I'm a nerd, um, it made me think about our work, and it made me think about um, two levels of things. It, at the individual level, it made me think about the exhausted clinician, that person who, who is waking up in their house, um, they're very tired, they're, they're cognitively overwhelmed, and they're navigating their family, and they're supporting their family, and they're walking through their neighborhood, um, and many people in their neighborhood are staying home, but they are going off to work. They get on the bus. The bus might be almost empty because so many people are home, but they make their way to their hospital and they open the door to the hospital. And I was thinking about what's the first touch between that person and the hospital? What is, what is that person's culture doing with them to set them up for a day that is positive and that's productive and that, that leaves them feeling embraced and leaves them feeling supported? And that was one level I was thinking about with first touch. And I think so often we, we make mistakes with that in organizations. I think so often we disregard, we don't even think about what that first interaction is with that person and how that sets that person up for a, for a positive day. And then the second level I was thinking about is really our headline here, which is the idea that, well, we know that our old way of organizing wasn't going to serve us in the COVID surge. And so, or at least the anticipated COVID surge. And so we reorganized dramatically to handle the COVID surge. And now we realize that we are faced with, like you said, Jenny, at the beginning, we're faced with an extended period of uncertainty. And so we really have the, another first touch moment, which is this, this first opportunity as the surge is ending and as the extended moment of uncertainty is beginning, we have an opportunity to shape our cultures, to take our first um, attempt at making a new culture because we know that the previous culture won't serve us. We know that the surge culture won't serve us and we need to craft a culture in this moment and what are we doing about this? And so I, I'm curious, you know, we're so lucky to have Lon and Laura here today. Um, I wanted to know how the two of you are processing these moments and these, and these concepts and, and um, what you've been thinking about related to these ideas. Laura, why don't we start with you? Uh, my initial reaction is just, I think it starts with just a common awareness that everything is so uncertain. Um, and that, you know, and that's true clinically, like everything, you know, what we're seeing clinically, not knowing enough about this virus and feeling insecure and uncertain about that. And then also just in, in terms of our interactions and our physical use of the space that we have has completely changed and i think just a collective awareness and uncertainty is is i guess my first reaction to that question and and uh chris i'd just like to build on one thing laura's saying to give some context uh in her answer so laura in conversations we've had, I know that you've been on the ICU in two different hospitals for the last two months, mostly on. And so you've been really experiencing this coming and going of new team members, new equipment, pop-up spaces, communicating through doors, PPE, um, you know, communicating with patients via Zoom, et cetera. And so I just wanted to highlight the roots of what you're saying, which is you've kind of been deeply embedded in that 
Um, I just think that's valuable for us to keep in mind as we think about your answer. Chris, sorry, back to you. Yeah, no worries. So Laura, um, one, of my, one of my major concerns is that hospitals and other healthcare organizations will underact, that they won't do enough to, uh, like you said, create a shared understanding that this is a different moment. This is an uncertain moment. Um, this is not returning to a previous normal and that um, too little action will be organized and too little action will be taken to proactively craft, recognize the moment, like you said, and then craft the culture. Do you, do you see that there's a collective effort in place in, in your organizations and in other organizations? Is it grassroots? Is it senior level? You know, what's happening there? So I think it's both. Um, I think that it's an opportunity, but also, um, there's a potential real mismatch because I think that clinicians and frontline workers and staff and helpers who are in the units are having a very different type of uncertainty and fear than administrators, educators, leadership who aren't interfacing with patients. And, you know, they may be feeling uncertainty and fear from like budgetary problems or reading the newspaper or just feeling like there's a lot of unknown in terms of where this pandemic is going, when it might surge again, how to deal with um, staffing and budget issues. But that's a really different type of uncertainty and fear than, than those of us who are actually seeing patients, communicating with families, um, dealing with you know, the day-to-day -day fears and confusion and uncertainty of doing clinical care. And so if these two groups aren't really don't really have a way of merging their uncertainties and fears and working together and sharing what's what's hard for them we're going to be having two very different experiences mm. i see lon nodding so <laughs> yeah <clears throat> well it, you're making a great connection to the administration of the organization and i'm kind of making a connection in my mind to the uh the culture of the world as a whole, which is that um, I think there's a lot of data that would tell us that inside the hospital, the previous culture wasn't working well for the clinical staff um, with the rates of burnout where they were. And outside of the hospital, the culture wasn't working well for a significant portion of our population. And we're seeing uncertainty on both of those levels and it's really coming from that disconnection in my mind that you're talking about, which is um, obviously our government is, is facing uncertainty, our hospital administrators are facing uncertainty, but it really is a different level than what people on the ground are feeling in, in both ways. Yeah, and if they don't acknowledge that, um, I think that's a really missed opportunity and a, and a big gap that can grow. So even now when um, people, even friends or um, colleagues who are non-clinical say, if they say, how are you? And I say, I'm really exhausted. And they say, I can, I can imagine what you're going through. And my thought bubble was like, no, you can't. <laughs> so I think, you know, we can't imagine. We have to actually talk to each other and learn. Yeah. So thank you. I, very powerful um, first comments here. I, we have data from the greater culture, Lon, and, and what you said made me think of that. And Jenny, I believe we have a slide around that. And yes. it's really about thriving out in thriving out in the world. And, and we know that 
um, thriving right now. Yeah, it's the one just one back right there. Perfect. So the, you know, the data around how adults are evaluating their lives tells us that I'm not feeling well right now. I'm not thriving. And this is a general feeling. Um, and we also know Jenny, and there's an, an, an adjacent slide to this one talking about what's important in organizations right now. And some of that data tells us that, um, yeah, that one right there. So how you feel about your job and feeling good about your job has a much stronger relationship to how well your organization performs in bad economic times than it does in, in normal times. And so we have a generally not thriving populace and we have a really strong need for great attitudes at work. And so that's, you know, and I was hearing a lot of this described in your comments just now. And I think it's a, it's a powerful moment for us, Jenny, you know, how will we respond? And this is, this is why I was saying there's really an imperative to be proactive for organizations right now, even though we feel weakened in many ways. Absolutely. So uh, uh, Lon, is there anything else you want to kind of uh, direct our attention to, or you're thinking about with respect to these dilemmas of inside, outside, up the hierarchy, down the hierarchy, patients, providers um, that you want to call our attention to? Well, uh, for me as an individual, our organization has been set up where education has been um, something that people go almost, almost outside of their normal work environment to go uh, get educated. And I've been thinking about what can we as educators actually be involved with that does that does add an element of control, and so I think that is uh, that the, it raises the question of how do we repurpose our own selves to gain control for our clinical staff. Mm. So, on that note, I'd like to then uh, kind of talk about this link between the frontline workers, the Uber administrators, our patients and our simulation mojo or our simulation skills. Because I think part of the goal of this webinar was to help people see how can I shape my culture as a simulationist? How can I shape my culture as an educationalist at this moment? And one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot at the Center for Medical Simulation is how do we reinvent ourselves at this moment? And I can imagine many of you on the webinar are also thinking about that. And fortunately, uh, one of the ways we're doing that came from a kind of moment, I think, Chris, that you had a couple months ago um, that got us started with this thing called Circle Up. Um, so would you just talk a little bit about your personal journey initially, and then maybe we can use that as a springboard to talk about how Circle Up can bridge these different divides? Yeah, sure. Thank you for the opportunity. I, so I started to worry as, as COVID um, was emerging as a phenomenon. Um, I started to think about what the impact would be on, well, my customers, the, the many international hospitals that I work with every day and, and um, on healthcare in general, I started to worry um, about the impact on the organizations and people's um, performance and psychological health. And so really started to think about how to assemble what we do very well and how to assemble um, the way we have conversations in simulation 
the way that we use learning to help solve problems, um, how to assemble those basic concepts in such a way that could help hospitals and help people in these moments. And so came up with this idea for Circle Up and Circle Up really emphasizes, I mentioned what happens when we open the door to the hospital and we're exhausted and we go to work, Circle Up really emphasizes that first conversation that we have with people before they go to work. Um, so I come through the door and uh, under the idea of circle up, I'm going to meet with my team and we're going to have a supportive conversation that makes us feel better psychologically. Yeah, this one here, Jenny, thank you. Um, and if you just click one more time, it'll show us the briefing. When I arrive at work, I'm going to have a conversation with my colleagues and we're going to um, not just review what's changed overnight and what's changed over the last week or last few days related to process and protocol and PPE and how we're handling patients and where we're bringing patients and how we're transitioning patients. But we're also going to review how we are going to support people and teams on this day. And we're going to prioritize that in ways that are very abnormal, that are not normal in hospitals or in many organizations. Um, and we're also going to take an opportunity to mentally rehearse the things that are new and different that day and to do that together in a supportive way. And, you know, these were some of the initial recommendations that we made to our clients and customers. We know you don't have time to do your traditional simulation training. How about very efficient mental rehearsals? How about brief supportive conversations before you work? And that, that turned into the idea of the circle up briefing. And then if you click one more time, Jenny, we thought, um, as you work in these uncertain contexts, uh, as you work in this COVID surge in ways that you are not used to, that are not normal, how can we be checking in with one another and offering help to one another in ways that are not normal, that we don't normally do? Um, and how can we make that into a feeling of a community of people checking in with one another, supporting one another and learning from one another? And also all of this allows us to adapt better as we work. And then if you click again, please, um, after we work or near the end of when we are working, can we have a debriefing? And we know simulation people do the best debriefings, right? I think that's a bumper sticker for a car. And um, how can we, at near the end of our work, process what we've done that day and really capture everything that we've learned? Do that in a way that's uplifting and do that in a way that allows us to capture what's going well because there's so much beautiful work happening. I, I, I would love to hear from Laura and Lon. There are many stories about the incredible things that people are doing to adapt and, and support one another. So capturing successes, exploring challenges, taking the shame out of difficulties and turning it into a community problem solving moment, giving people much better emotional ways to end their day so that they can go home and they can rest and um, getting the learning from our team and our shift to the other teams and to the other shifts. And this became, these three pieces really became the spirit of Circle Up and the system of Circle Up, this idea that day over day, if we do these three things, we can learn a lot, we can support our psychological health, and this can allow us to sustain ourselves in the present moment, but also for the foreseeable future. It's a, it's a, a sustainable, healthy way to work with one another. Thank you, Chris. So um, the reason I invited Chris to describe this here is because uh, Laura and Lon and those of you online, we think of conversations as a culture driver, one of the most profound ways that you can shape culture. 
So I'm going to layer just a little more concepts on here. And then Laura and Lon, I'd like to come to you and talk with you a little bit about how you are using whatever kind of conversations, briefings to briefings or other things to, sh to manage the culture changes you're facing and, and um, improving. So what I'd like to let you know is that we haven't lost our minds to think that culture might be shaped by conversation. Many of us think as of our organizational culture as kind of stuck, set, immutable. I can't do anything about it. Actually, what we know from organizational behavior research, anthropology, a whole variety of areas is culture is created, tiny micro interaction by micro interaction, agreeing with certain norms or speaking up about certain norms. Certainly our current cultural um, and racial clash situation that we have right now is bringing to the fore our different ways that we choose to interact with each other. That's an example of conversations building culture. But within healthcare, for example, every time something happens and I don't speak up, I am reinforcing a culture of silencing and indirectness. To take it on myself, I'm the executive director of this organization. Every time I don't make it possible, I don't invite people to speak up. Even if my heart is pure, I am contributing potentially to a culture of silencing and indirectness. Each micro choice we make conversationally builds up into culture. Hence, when Chris is talking about Circle Up as a way to have briefings, debriefings, peer check-ins, those are creating a culture of caring about our peers, of caring about fixing our workflow right at that moment of that one clinical procedure that didn't go well. Oh, we don't know where the PPE is this afternoon. That's not okay. How do we fix that? We're empowering ourselves to take action and those conversations then build up into our culture. And then our culture in turn shapes our conversation. So if I'm an intimidating, silencing, not welcoming leader, I establish a culture where people won't want to talk and then they don't. And so this is a, can be a vicious reinforcing cycle where conversation shapes a culture that's silencing and shaming or whatever and that reinforces. But I believe the reason I'm so excited about this moment is this is the moment for us to flip toxic cultures to a virtuous reinforcing cycle where we have better conversations that lead to a little incrementally better culture, better conversation, a little bit better culture. So that's kind of where we're coming from with all these circles. Um, so uh, Lon, if I could uh, talk to me a little bit about how you're seeing culture play out as it relates to conversations you're trying to have right now in your organization. Jenny, well, if I might, if I might uh, jump in there to oh, add please, before, yes. uh, so uh, building on this question and long to give you from the Q&A, um, there's a uh, thing, really nice comment from Kendra Walt, who's an interprofessional educator in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And she's saying, interestingly, during COVID, a lot of people jumped right into education and lots of enthusiasm and buy-in because it seemed relevant. So how do we continue to leverage the importance of education post COVID in the organization when like business as usual, maybe it doesn't value it as much. And in your multi role as both leader, 
clinician and education lead, I thought that question might fit into your comments. Great. Thank you, Damien. So to connect to Circle Up, I think uh, when I saw this program, I thought that it connected really well with what we were trying to do in our emergency department already, but we didn't really have a structure for. And so we had a system of when people arrived uh, to start their work, there was a first touch that was pretty adequate and was quite similar to what Chris had designed where they got a status update and expectations for the day. And um, the pieces that we added were, number one, did you need to rehearse any of the new changes mentally? Uh, because I think that was helpful and it added a period where people could ask questions and clarify, as opposed to just being told what the new changes were. And number two, we added a question, which was how will you show that you care for each other out there? And people had their own ways actually of demonstrating that, which I thought was incredibly effective. And there was really some peer learning that happened. A gap that we found was that we weren't uh, closing the end of the day in an effective way. So we weren't helping people, um, helping our organization learn, and we weren't helping people let go of their work day as effectively as we needed to. So we have been experimenting with different ways of ending the day, having a debrief period. And I think simulation skills, which are really just conversation skills, are the right skills to apply to that. Um, so we just yesterday trained uh, six uh, of, our, of our charge nurses in the emergency department in basic debrief skills. And we're going to be doing some co-debriefing to help them, help the department learn and help people uh, end their day successfully. Lon, I love what I'm hearing from you. I'd like to follow up in two ways. So one is uh, you said that there was some peer learning about how do people show they care for each other. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And then I have another thing. I'd yeah, so I'll, I think one of the best things would be to just throw out some examples. Um, one of the nurses said, that the day before their, their nurse partner in their pod had um, told them, when you go to lunch, I'll sign up for all your patients. And that was something that we wouldn't have thought of as a peer support. Um, and they were able to teach their, their fellow nurses that that was an activity that showed support. And, um, it, and actually the physician who was who was there mentioned how helpful that was to their workflow. And so there was this really virtuous cycle of supporting a change that came through their own work and their own ideas. And I think that's the type of thing that can really um, grow quickly and also add a sense of control and compassion to, to uh, our colleagues. So that kind of caring in the moment, uh, helping someone go to lunch and really go to lunch, not worry about those patients is a beautiful thing. And then others learn from that. Sounds so good. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about is that end of the day and how do we close that off in a caring way um, in terms of building a culture of caring. Uh, a few weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Liz Crow, who's a critical care social worker in Brisbane, Australia. And she talked about the metaphor of doffing the day, not yeah. only your PPE. Um, and 
it sounds to me like you're moving in that direction a little bit. Can you talk to me a bit about how that looks or how's the impact been or what are you aiming for? Yeah, so one of my nurse colleagues and I have designed a basic template, which will be a 10 minute debrief um, towards the end of a shift. And the, there are four or five questions. The first one is, how's everybody feeling right now? Um, uh, the second one is, what enabled you to be successful in your work today? Um, which is kind of a plus, another plus. Uh, how did you show that you cared for your colleagues? And um, then a delta, did you have what you needed to be successful today? So trying to um, find what they could do, um, what, what gaps existed for them. And then the, uh, the ending on a plus, uh, a couple of pluses. One is um, if we could make this just 1% better for us tomorrow, what would we do? And so just looking for little changes. And then the last one is how are you going to transition to uh, leaving work today? And usually that one is a source of laughter. <laughs> anything, anything, anything shareable? Oh, uh, a common one is uh, shower beer. Uh -huh. which, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wonderful. Uh, Chris, do you want to get a word in edgewise here? I was going to, my next move would be to chat a bit with Laura Rock about some of this, but I'm thinking you may have some thoughts or you might want to guide for a little bit. I, I love that, that we just addressed emotional resolution. I think this opportunity to have voice um, in processing difficulties, um, sharing experiences, feeling more normal, and um, given an opportunity to even talk about the fact that you, it is hard to transition to home and it will be hard to rest, I think just fundamentally so incredibly valuable. And again, something that we don't do normally. Um, so I think Lon's examples were just really powerful. Right. So I'd like to uh, just recap a little bit where we've been and then turn the conversation to you, Laura, around conversation shaping culture, how you're seeing that, how you think about that. So we started out by talking a bit about this as a unique moment, probably within our lifetimes to make change in culture. It's unlikely to have as, as fluid and malleable a moment. Chris Rusin talked to us about the importance of how we meet people when they come into the hospital, how they, what is our role in the first touch? How do we create culture in the first moment that we interact with people as a possible place of influence? Um, Chris introduced this idea that we simulationists can use our briefing, debriefing, and peer check-in mojo to help people either you know, in, in the hospital or in the clinic or, or other settings, um, potentially also in, in our schools, in our medical schools, our nursing schools at a you know, beginning of a class planning session or something like that. Um, and then I suggested that um, conversation shapes culture. Culture is not set. You don't have to live with it, especially at this moment. This is an urgent moment. The, iron is hot this is the time to strike um and so laura rock i'm wondering as you kind of think about that whole flow and coming off the being in two months on the icu what's on your mind regarding conversation and culture uh, i guess the first thing um i want to just share with this um group everyone listening is that this sounds like a really daunting big change 
And actually, it's as it's as as minor and simple as just deciding to make conversation a part of your culture. And you know, when you start off, um, I think that first touch of deciding to introduce conversation across hierarchies. Um, I'm going to just describe what a huge difference that makes, but I also think there's a second, third, and fourth touch where maybe you decide to do it in a more robust or a more sort of um, conscious way and, and introduce some of these specific um, types of questions that Lon described. Um, but I think, you know, to begin with, it's as simple as deciding, you know what, we really should just check in with each other at the beginning and end of a day. And, uh-oh. Oh. Sorry, I thought I got disconnected. Sorry, Laura, uh, you're, we're here with you. Sorry, just changed the view. Very good. So, um, so I think you know, as as doing as as simple a thing as deciding, you know, hey team, um, and I actually did this in one of the places where I was working on one of our COVID units, where we had all these staff that don't even normally work in the ICU and a bunch of people that don't um, know each other, and I had not done the big sort of rollout. Um, sort of promotional messaging of starting this new program. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm your new attending. I just want to start by like gathering the team and let's just do introductions and figure out who's, you know, who's, who the team is today. And it was, you know, it was kind of welcomed with some like eyebrow raising and confusion, but then it was just really easy. And so I think that, you know, it's nice to have a lot of promotional messaging and, and planning and, and a big sort of drum roll rollout when you're starting a new program, but it's actually not essential. And it, um, it was really powerful. And I just wanted to share because two or three days into doing this with this particular team, I went around and just asked the group, like, what do you think of these do doing these little, you know, check ins in the morning, these briefings, and then um, and debriefings at the end of the day. And they said things like, um, making a connection with the team you're working with for the shift changes the shift, it sets a tone. Um, introductions made a huge difference. It was really helpful to make connections and see who we were working with for the day. I, someone said, I got the sense you really cared about me and how the work affected me, which made me feel really supported, especially on a hard day. Um, and, and someone said, I just, it just made the work more fun. Starting with this short, fun connection started, started us off with a little jolt. I mean, this is really hard work and making those kinds of connections makes me feel a sense of loyalty to the team and makes the day more fun. And then um, the last one I wanted to share was someone said, at the end of a really tough day, it really helped transition to let the day go and feel like I don't have to keep thinking about it. Sharing it with the group was like a giant exhale. So I, I just think this was like three days into a totally unplanned, I mean, it was planned in my head, but the group, you know, it was just kind of something that I brought in and, you know, although I've done this with a much more proactive, robust type of program in other units, in this particular unit, it was just um, kind of an easy conversation to add that was really well received. And then, you know, I think um, in this other hospital where I work, I did the same thing and we ended up just including, you know, everyone sort of who was around in the unit, including the um, clean cleaning staff who when we asked, you know, for introductions, I learned that this person had been cleaning in this unit for more than five years and a lot of people didn't know her name. And so I think, and the, and the group ended up giving her a round of applause 
because just to say in that moment, like, wow, we couldn't do any of this without you. And this was sort of in the heart of the surge that we were all dealing with that was really hard. And so I think, you know, just recognizing that just introducing a, a, a team conversation, it doesn't actually have to be a really big deal. Um, over time, you can make it more and more robust and more and more conscious and um, and I do think that there, it is really important for leadership to know what people are saying, and that's a kind of a separate issue. But even just having these conversations changes the tone and changes the feeling among the group. Laura, thank you so much. Um, Chris, I'm going to uh, go over to you in a moment because uh, I know you have some thoughts you want to share with a slide. Uh, but Damien and, and all of our listeners uh, just really like to invite any comments or questions uh, please pop them into the Q&A, something you'd like to make sure that you uh, would like to hear from Laura or Lon or any of us about before we wrap up um, uh, the webinar. So please feel free to text us. Jenny, are you okay if I just uh, reflect on the differences in our approaches a little bit? Of course. Um, I just wanted to point out how malleable this is. And one of the challenges that I personally face is like a low clinical uh, workload and rotating shifts and Laura has continuity with her team for about a week at a time and so my my challenge which some people might face something similar to me is uh how to scale this and how to keep it when you're not there um mm -hmm. keep it going and so that was kind of behind the formality that we were trying to create in our program and everybody's going to have their own solution which is probably some combination of these two Great. So Laura Rock and Lon Setnick, uh, Laura Rock from uh, the ICU context at Beth Israel Deaconess and Cambridge Health Alliance, Lon Setnick from the emergency department context at Concord Hospital, have different challenges in how they shape culture uh, based on their personal presence on the unit, what works better being formalized or not formalized. And the broader context is they're both talking about using briefings, debriefings, and peer check-ins to shape culture. So with that, uh, Chris, I'm gonna toss it over to you here. Jenny, just in, 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 in interweaving into there, yeah, I, and what I'm getting from, from this conversation at this very moment is, I think that for me, changing culture is super daunting, but deciding what kind of workplace environment you wanna be in and how much fun and connected you want it to be, that's the opportunity. That's I think a lot, from what I heard from Laura and Lon, that's accessible, attainable, and takes getting started with the first steps. So I just wanted to sneak Thank that in. Thank and you. Pa uh, pass it back to Chris. Thank Thanks, you, Damien. So, you know, to, to all the points that were made, um, Having, so what are core principles here? Having conversations that are supportive, that give people voice, um, fundamentally positive. So one of the big themes here is finding ways to have those conversations in your organizations, because we know we need resilience. We know we need adaptability in this environment that we're in. And we know that without that, we can't have patient safety. So Jenny, if you'll just click once, please. Um, and Laura brought up, you know, finding ways to huddle finding ways to have these together conversations and hopefully doing that with skill and doing that with good principles of, of inviting all the relevant people, um, inviting people to take part. 
But just having the conversations, to Laura's point, is fundamentally positive and allows us to be more adaptable. And Jenny, one more click. But we've recognized that we have this imperative. We have this absolute necessity to support psychological health. We are already feeling hurt in various ways. Um, we are already um, tired out and we need help sustaining and building our psychological health. Jenny, if you'll click, please. Um, from our science and our research in, in Jenny's field and my field, we know that giving people voice, giving people an opportunity to participate in their own solutions, providing people basic um, approaches to emotional support um, improves psychological health. Um, and one more click, if we can refine our mechanisms where we come together as a group and make sure that when we do come together, we give that voice in the huddle, we allow people to participate through the mechanism of the huddle. We give people emotional support in the huddle and we use those opportunities and we really optimize our chances when we come together. I think that's the, that's the core idea of Circle Up. Have these conversations and also make them supportive of psychological health every time. Give people voice every time. Because otherwise, and I like to be very straightforward with my concerns, otherwise my concern is that the huddle will be the old-fashioned kind of huddle, which is we only talk about process, we only talk about protocol, and then we run out of the room. And, and Damien injected the idea of togetherness, even fun, joy at work, um, and crafting culture around those concepts. Those, those ideas and the spirit of that can also inform the way that we gather and the way that we have huddles. I think that's really important. Chris, thank you. So we have a, uh, maybe a, just a few minutes here, Laura Rock and Lon Setnick, to turn our attention to uh, a wonderful question that we had up here, which is uh, the, the writer said there's this very permeable moment right now. People are talking up and down the hierarchy. People are talking across their silos. People are expressing that they don't know. People are willing to ask questions. The pathophysiology is so different. Um, the administrators are trying new things to some degree. How do we sustain that as the pressure from cost cutting, um, the desire to keep you know, our organizations afloat when, we're, when you know, lots of people are worried, you know, at the administrative level worried about the folding? Um, you know, I, I know neither of you works in the C-suite, but what are your thoughts about maintaining this permeability? Uh, Laura. Um, I think that helping people feel valued and making sure that the people on the front lines know that leadership is listening to their concerns has an enormous impact. So we've known from our own research on our debriefing programs that um, it was really impactful for people in the ICU to know that leadership was aware of everything that they raised in the debriefings and they were acting on the things that that they raised so um i do think that talking is nice and it can have a huge impact on the team itself but over time if, if nobody pays attention to their concerns they may end up disengaging and feeling like it's it's just not worthwhile and it may actually just make their concerns sort of fester um, but it really well, can I just jump in there for a second? I want to just clarify the mechanism because I think it's so important. So what Laura is saying is if we have these learning conversations that are causing peer support, one of the ways to bake them in and bake that 
malleability and permeability in in the longer term is make sure that the ideas, the fixes that come up get fed in because then the system benefits from that and will support it more. Laura, and you know, I think that um, it's one thing for administrative people to come down and, and talk to clinicians. Um, personally, I think that's not as effective as having clinicians talk to one another and share their best practices and their concerns about working on the front lines and then having those concerns shared with administrators and then having a response directed at those concerns. Because I think there isn't as much psychological safety speaking up to admin and they just, they won't be having the same conversation because they're not talking to peers. So I think making a process whereby those debriefings and briefings that are happening um, and the concerns raised are fed up to the leadership that has the power to do something about what they're raising is, is a more effective and um, process and that's also going to promote more engagement. Okay, folks, we need to wrap up in the next minute or so, uh, so that we can just talk to you about a couple other things beyond the content here. So, um, Laura, in a moment, I'm going to just ask you for a, a final thought, Lon, a final thought, and then Chris, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, so, Laura, what would you leave us with here? I guess I would leave with you know, there's so much uncertainty and fear, and there's also a lot of financial pressure. Um, in order to get more out of our individual people and actually help promote joy in work and best practices, we need to be promoting com community and conversations. We know that um, you can actually promote um, greater greater loyalty and uh, harder work just by helping people feel valued. And one, one way to help people feel valued is to actually give them a space where their concerns can be shared and their emotions can be supported and promote a sense of community among their peers. Thank you, Laura. Lon Setnick from Concord Hospital in New Hampshire, what would you leave us with? Well, I'm feeling behind all of this work is really the basic assumption of the people we work with. And we need to make sure that the people who are having these conversations, um, that as simulationists or educators, we can add the basic assumption to these conversations. And I think that in this moment of distress for our communities and our, our administrators, for example, um, we really need to extend the basic assumption to them. And I agree with Laura with all the positive things that this type of activity can bring. And so it, it really is with curiosity that we should, um, we should ask the question that if our administrators know that as well, why hasn't it happened already? And how can we work together understanding that there are people who are trying to do their best as well? So, um, and, and I'm using administrators, but that goes for our community leaders as well. So I think if we can remember the basic assumption when we're having all these conversations, it will really promote uh, a much better uh, conversations. Thank you, Lon. And, and uh, for those who have not heard that phrase before, the basic assumption is assuming that the person you're talking to is intelligent, capable, trying to do their best and wants to improve. Chris, take us Thank out. Thank you. Wow, what an opportunity. So I'd say that um, it's a moment for activism, uh, organizational activism that's really positive and productive. We, 
it's a moment to recognize that our organizations are not built to be supportive and not built to be flexible and, and to adapt. And it, that might be a hard realization, but it's the truth. Um, I believe we all know it, and there's evidence in all of our healthcare organizations that this is largely true. Um, but it's okay that we can implement one small system at a time or even one conversation at a time, these mechanisms, these tools of adaptation and of support. And really it can be started to Laura's point with one conversation on one morning. And uh, it, can, it can be also a larger grandiose um, implementation, but now is the time to insert these mechanisms of adaptability and, and support. We, we need them. Thank you, Chris and Damian Shield. I'm gonna hand back to you. Thank you, uh, Laura Rock from Beth Israel Deaconess and Cambridge Health Alliance and Lon Sentinel from Concord Hospital. And Chris Rusin, my beloved colleague from CMS, over to my other beloved colleague, Damian Shield. It wouldn't be a Zoom call if somebody wasn't muted. So um, I uh, wanted to just start with appreciation. Thank you um, everybody for joining today uh, and listening and learning together. I uh, just really enjoyed it and feel connected. I just appreciate the transformation and frame shift for me from all of you, especially Laura, to, to think that uncertainty is really just curiosity about the future. If the future was certain, then one wouldn't be that uh, we would we wouldn't be that uh, interested in it. And so I'm I'm feeling a little more comfortable and excited about that uncertainty coming up. What is certain is that next week on our weekly webinar, uh, we're going to keep on drilling down and even more so around our core um, area of healthcare simulation. Uh, Chris Rusin and Mary Faye, they have a presentation called Roadmap to Relevance, and I'd like to invite everybody to join. That's uh, all about implementing simulation zone-based interventions to do this kind of relevant education to help our organizations and the people in it do their great work, be ready for action, whether it's at the clinicians, people learning, teams. Uh, I think it's gonna be a great presentation and I'm looking forward to it. Um, there's a series of uh, webinars coming up and you can see that on the webpage uh, that are going to keep on working on that. We've got a short feedback workshop. We've got a session uh, that's going to be around clarifying your value proposition, which as you're reinventing or repositioning either your simulation program or your own work within your center. I think that's uh, also going to be really interesting. And uh, along those lines, the Center for Medical Simulation, we're also trying to adapt to the times and uh, wanted to close by uh, letting you know that uh, the faculty, myself, all of our team is available to work with you uh, for a needs assessment, for a short consult, for a web-based program. Really everything that we've been doing for ourselves, we'd be happy to do with you. And uh, don't hesitate to reach out uh, through our website or by directly emailing me or uh, reaching me on Twitter uh, by any means necessary. So uh, I'd like to end on time. And so um, now that it's the, uh, we're at the top of the hour, I just want to say thank you again. Stay well, stay strong, stay uh, connected and having fun. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Bye, everybody.